Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte, and I know we say this every day. Well, usually we say we've got a lot to get into, so I'm going to say we've got a very full show today. Uh, and that is true. we got a lot of people to talk to and a lot of things to talk about. We are going to start off in just a couple minutes talking about this prisoner exchange uh, that was announced uh, pretty suddenly yesterday between Russia and Ukraine. I'm going to say I think that sounds like good news. Also interesting who the broker apparently was, Saudi Arabia. Uh, positioning itself as some kind of global negotiator, which I think is also uh, worth some discussion. We are going to talk about rising prices in Europe and the protests that have been following them. There was a new one in Brussels just yesterday. And we will get into what the Italian election this weekend might mean for future EU solidarity. We will also, of course, be talking about the blow Donald Trump's legal team just got with an appeals court deciding the DOJ can, after all, access classified documents that were taken from Mar-a-Lago. This decision limits the scope of the special master's review to some degree. We are going to get the latest news from the war in Ethiopia and also talk about what the African Union has been asking for at the UN General Assembly this week. We are going to talk about a cryptocurrency creator who may or may not be on the lam. Uh, he is wanted. He hasn't turned himself in, but he has been tweeting things like, I'm not on the run. So uh, do we want to take his word for it? Uh, who knows? We will talk about the uh, slightly more complicated relationship between Russiagate's main source and the FBI. We will ask why the U.S. is ranking among developing countries on some rankings that assess things like well-being, equality, uh, environmental protection, access to health care and education and the like. And we are going to uh, take a look at some investigations into voter suppression in the state of Georgia. And there is quite a lot that we are going to talk about in addition to those things that I can't, I can't, I can't just list uh, straight through the top of the show. The other thing is, this is something that caught my eye before we get to some of these uh, these other big topics. So, um, Amazon, uh, the Congress, U.S. Congress has has been wanting to talk to Amazon uh, about all kinds of different uh, shady practices in their business, and one that they are getting into now is about how you uh, sign up for and cancel Prime. So there's an FTC investigation that is looking into whether Amazon deceived customers into signing up for Prime and then didn't provide a simple way to cancel the Prime membership's recurring charges. And so Amazon has been asking the FTC to cancel subpoenas that have been issued to uh, Jeff Bezos and another top executive. What... What jumped out to me, I mean, sure, it, you know, grill Bezos as much as you want, investigate Amazon as much as you like, bring on all the anti-monopoly uh, probes, go for it. Uh, the most difficult subscription to cancel that I have ever encountered is that of the New York Times, where you have to actually, there's no button, you can't find, there. there there's no... um 
online form that you can fill out to, to get out of that subscription. You have to actually make a phone call and wait on hold and talk to a person to get them to cancel your subscription, which I will have to say, Amazon doesn't make you do. So if you're going to look into um, companies uh, trying to make you spend quite a lot of your time to get out of their uh, grasp, you know, go ahead and, and look at the NYT too. The other story we have a little bit of an update on here is, uh, is Fat Leonard. Fat Leonard has been caught. Tragic, tragic day for uh, for criminals and absconders the world round. John and I mentioned Fat Leonard on the show the other day because he had remarkably been able to cut off his ankle monitor and escape custody, and he was missing for like two weeks. And so a fun story in Responsible Statecraft summarized the whole Fat Leonard saga, which when John and I mentioned it, we didn't have time to get into. Um, and also uh, made me aware of the really inexplicably light security that was assigned to this, again, a professional international logistics coordinator with a huge influence network and a lot of wealth. Fat Leonard was at the center of arguably the largest corruption scandal in the history of the U.S. Navy. This is, again, coming from this um, Responsible Statecraft article. For years, he had bribed and otherwise corrupted hundreds of Navy officers to look the other way as he systemically overcharged the U.S. government on hundreds of millions in Pentagon contracts. Coming into play among these bribes are drugs, sex workers, Cuban cigars, Lady Gaga tickets, and of course, a lot of cash. And when Navy investigators began to look into the issue, he bought some of them off as well. And so, as John mentioned, finally in 2013, he was lured to a hotel in San Diego where he was captured. He flipped. In 2015, he pleaded guilty to offering half a million dollars in bribes to Navy officials in exchange for classified information for getting Navy vessels redirected to ports where his business was stationed, where he could make more money. And prosecutors say he overcharged the U.S. military by $35 million for his company's services. So he's been awaiting sentencing for like seven years. He had been freed from federal custody in 2018 for health reasons. So when he escaped, he was living in a private home. And you think, well, of course there were security guards there, right? Yeah, there were private security guards that he paid for. And so uh, Responsible Statecraft writes that the federal government knew so little about Fat Leonard's home situation that the judge overseeing his case reportedly had no idea that Leonard had even moved in with his mother and several children were living with him, several of his children. So no wonder he managed to escape. Uh, managed, right? With some air quotes there. And so what happens was he was caught in Venezuela. He was detained by Interpol at an airport in Caracas, I believe yesterday. He was on his way to Cuba. And I find I find it interesting to speculate whether Venezuela did us a solid or uh, whether some people might have wanted Fat Leonard out of their hair and Venezuela got in the way. Of course, he has already flipped on a bunch of these corrupt officers, so I really don't know how much more damage he could do. I just think it's sort of a fun question to ask, especially since they made it so comically easy uh, for him to get away from his home arrest. So for now, the the the... The, uh, the runaway, the escapades of, of Fat Leonard ended again. He's going to come back. Maybe they will actually get around to sentencing him sometime soon. And 
I know we have our next guest on the line, so I think we will go straight into some slightly more important news. We are going to talk about the Saudi-brokered prisoner exchange between Russia and Ukraine. We're going to get into cost of living protests in Europe, and we are going to ask what kind of pressure, if any, might make countries reconsider the current sanctions regime or make drastic changes to alleviate its effects on their people. Joining me for this conversation is Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action Magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy. Jeremy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So let's start with this uh, prisoner exchange. Saudi Arabia yesterday afternoon announced that Crown Prince Mohammed Salman had brokered a prisoner exchange between Ukraine and Russia that saw uh, 10 prisoners, 10 foreign prisoners released by Russia. And among them were fighters taken prisoner on the battlefield, including two Americans, five Brits, a Croatian, I believe, a Swede, and a Moroccan. It is interesting to me that among this crew were the three foreign fighters who had been sentenced to death for mercenary activities in trials in the Donbass region earlier this summer. And so uh, there is a lot that I think is is pretty remarkable about this exchange. Uh, I think the fact that it happened uh, says something significant. I think who was exchanged is important. I think who brokered it is very uh, interesting. And the timing uh, may not be coincidental. So, uh, you know, going step by step, what do you make of the fact that these exchanges are being successfully negotiated at all? Well, yeah, as you said, there are a lot of interesting intrigues here. I mean, one is the, the presence of these foreign fighters. I mean, that confirms uh, that, you know, how many of these foreign, it raises questions, how many of them are there if they're numbers of prisoners who are, as you say, from Britain, from the United States, who are these people? You know, they, they may claim they're mercenaries. Do they work for the intelligence service or, or special forces? And it, it points to a, a pretty significant West, Western role in the conflict, which is what Russia has been saying all along. And, uh, yeah, as you say, another interesting facet is the role of Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And it may point to, you know, Saudi Arabia, I think, I mean, you know, Biden visited there uh, earlier this year and, you know, made, I think, a strong pitch to try and sustain, you know, sustain the traditional U.S.-Saudi, uh, excuse me, Saudi alliance. But, you know, Saudi Arabia may be moving away from the United States and, and moving closer to Russia, uh, exemplified in this process and they're kind of helping out russia to some extent there and you know that that's key in global shift in power uh, relations given the importance of the saudi oil industry and the the deal the u.s had a trade you know pushing the saudis to trade uh uh, their oil and petro and u.s dollars uh, in exchange for various benefits the u.s brought but if that alliance shifts in saudi arabia become more allied with russia and you know there was just a shanghai uh, conference they had recently mm-hmm. uh you know ushering basically a new economic order and more multipolar world order uh so so i think that shift is unfolding before our very eyes do you think this also has anything to do with um mbs you know, his his political goals, his uh, desire to kind of rebrand himself and his country. Because I was not aware, maybe I've, I've missed it. I was not aware that Saudi Arabia had really a, a, a role as a global negotiator. Like some, some countries, ha- you know... Uh, to ha- take this on as a sort of uh, aspect of their national brand, right, and try to position themselves as as no- negotiators and and you know brokers of deals like this, but that seems to me to be pretty new for Saudi Arabia. 
Yeah, oh, and I should add, the, the conference uh, was in Uzbekistan, where China and Russia met, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with many other countries. But yeah, uh, yeah, it, it remind it's almost kind of like the mafia, you know, when he tries to get into legitimate business and, you know, make a res- respectable reputation for himself. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the Saudi royal family is like a mafia. Uh, <clears throat> and yeah, I agree with you. This is maybe an effort to gain, try and gain some respectability and, and burnish their image. Uh, when it's more of a, a mafia regime. Uh, on the other hand, at least they're doing something positive here. Sure. Um, talk to me also about the timing, because, of course, the exchange was announced right after Russia declared that it was going to mobilize reservists uh, to, you know, sort of indirectly support its fight in Ukraine. Do you think the timing was coincidental or not? Uh, I don't think it's coincidental. Uh, I mean, yeah, Russia may also, you know, be trying to. I mean, you know, there's a a propaganda and psychological war that's been going on, you know, since the war started. That's really a very important component of this uh, this war. And I mean, clearly on that phase of the war, Ukraine and the West, you know, to some extent, have been winning at least among their own population. Uh, so Russia may be. You know, trying to also, you know, work to try and improve its image by showing its willingness to negotiate. On the other hand, yeah, I think this, you know, uh, solidifies Russia's point that they're under attack. Because Putin, in his speech yesterday, said, I mean, Russia was under attack. That the, the nation uh, is threatened. Uh, the very survival of the nation, and that necessitates this military mobilization and the presence of these foreign soldiers who kind of confirms his view uh, that they are indeed under attack. It's a foreign attack. And, you know, the foreign sponsorship of the Ukrainian regime is massive. Uh, the massive military aid they provided, combined with you know, unknown numbers of Western personnel, are supporting the Ukrainian military. Yeah, that does remain very mysterious, just how many um, Westerners are are part of those forces there. And of course, it is, I think, John and I said at the time, you know, it's hard to imagine these, um, the sentences that were passed on these, uh, you know, three of this group earlier in the summer, it's hard to imagine them being carried out. So, you know, we'll pat ourselves on the back for predicting this correctly, that there would be some kind of exchange brokered as a result. Jeremy, let me also... yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. No, no, I'll I'll, I'll wait for your next question. Oh, well, I was just going to ask, you know, since this mobilization was announced, there have also been some protests in Russia, and I wonder how um, serious you think these are or might become. Uh, It's hard for me to gouge Russian opinion, but my feeling is that these... And there are, you know, some divisions in Russian society, and uh, there is some opposition to the war. Yeah, certainly if, if Russia, uh, you know, if this war drags further and further, there may be more domestic pressure on Putin to end it. On the other hand, I think uh, a considerable portion of the Russian population supports uh, Putin. Putin's popularity rating, I believe, have gone up, which showed that the sanctions regime, and I mean, the whole purpose of the war is really to try and erode Putin credibility and facilitate regime change uh, in Russia by ratcheting up these sanctions and crippling the Russian economy and bogging them in a quagmire. And I, I don't think that strategy is working. I think Putin had been articulate explaining the Russian uh, uh, security uh, interests at play in Ukraine. Uh, in effect, uh, 
Putin can package the war as a kind of humanitarian intervention, unlike a lot of these kind of fake humanitarian interventions that the U.S. was involved in, there is a legitimate humanitarian crisis uh, that, that Russia was responsive to in eastern Ukraine with the Ukrainian army attack after the coup of 2014 and the thousands of civilians who were killed and the shellings carried out by the Ukrainian military uh, in the Donetsk region. And uh, Russia can lay claim to you know, trying to save those people from basically a terrorist onslaught. Uh, so there, there actually is a claim to humanitarian intervention there. There is a claim under international law, and there are legitimate security interests. Again, given these foreign tr uh, troops uh, and mercenaries that are supporting the Ukrainian army, and these attacks have, 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 have extended into Russia proper with the car bombing of uh, Ms. Dugina, the tragic death of this young journalist. And there was an article in the New York Times about these Ukrainian uh, commando slash terrorist units uh, who are carrying out car bombings uh, in eastern Ukraine and even attempting to do so within Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, a, again, a, a security threat for the Russian population to which Putin is responsive. And I think any country, including you know, here in the United States, if we face that kind of threat, a foreign Baku on our border and terrorists uh, carrying out uh, brazen car bombings in the United States, the American population would, would rally behind its leaders, mm -hmm. as it has done in wars like World War II. Uh, so I, I think uh, the reports we're finding in Western media are very biased. And, uh, you know, they evade really these issues that that lend to support for the war uh, among Russia. And I, I think it's a very reluctant support because I spent time in Russia and I think most Russians are, are not warmongering people at all. But there's a unique circumstance here that leads, um, you know, that many are rallying behind their leader, Putin, mm -hmm. who, you know, for all his flaws, he's, he's done a lot for the Russian population. The, the country is much more stable economically under his leadership compared to his predecessor. And he, you know, people, when I spoke to a lot of Russians, they all underscored that point, mm -hmm. how the country is much better off under his leadership than under Yeltsin and the, the, the corrupt uh, corruption that went on under Yeltsin and the, the sell-off of, of the country's economic assets to unscrupulous elements, which Putin largely put a stop to. Speaking of protests, Jeremy, we had some 10,000 people taking to the streets in Brussels to protest high energy prices, specifically and generally a cost of living that is just outpacing uh, their ability to meet it. And so we, we have seen protests uh, over the last couple of weeks arise regularly in different parts of Europe. Um, a Euro news story on these particular protests in Belgium said uh, people told them they want action from their national politics. They don't want their immediate economic suffering to be blamed on geopolitics as though nothing can be done about it. And they want some specific changes like giving unions more power to negotiate wage increases. Um, you know, this is a question that I ask anytime we talk about these protests. They, they are primarily about people wanting solutions from their own politicians to the specific problem of their cost of living. But I wonder how long politicians can keep going yes it's it's geopolitics it's geopolitics that's causing your suffering before people start to say well okay then change our geopolitics change our geopolitical stance absolutely yeah and you know you, you scratch your head and wonder almost why people have waited this long <laughs> 
or why you know they haven't been challenging their leaders more. You know they've been so acquiescent. I, I think the propaganda has been so thick and so powerful, and I think it's it's targeted in part the liberal end of the spectrum. You know, liberal left. Uh, uh, this you know r- propaganda against Russia, and it's been quite effective. We see often the green parties in Europe, and even you know left wing groups here in the United States are often the most uh, virulent Russophobes and virulent and or, or uh, aggressive in championing like military aid to Ukraine. But at some point, just like the the WMD fraud in Iraq, it's going to crack. And that the people are going to be extremely angry. You know, once, once more and more understand that they've been deceived, uh, these protests are going to expand massively and, and could expand into a revolution. I mean, we're getting really into a crisis-like situation where the governments are not meeting the needs of the people. The cost of uh, quality of life is deteriorating. I mean, in the United States, it's been reported that the uh, the uh, age of uh, what do you call that? The you know the the age people live to mm-hmm. is is declined by like uh, you know a considerable amount just in the last uh, you know several years. So yeah, I think it was I mean, a full, we're serious a full year in the last year or two, I believe. Yeah, just in one year. Uh, so I mean, we're getting you know I mean if you look at history, it was in these periods of of economic. Uh, huge inequality and economic breakdown like the Great Depression that you saw an upsurge of protests and radical social movements develop. And I think we're on the precipice probably of something very big because uh, the status quo just isn't working and more people are, are, uh, you know, the, the, the trust in government is eroded and the more they understand uh, how they've been deceived about Ukraine, uh, just like they were about Iraq, uh, the more these protests are going to expand, and hopefully they'll take on progressive. The danger is a slide towards fascism, as we saw in the Great Depression. You know, an angry population mm-hmm. if they don't uh, have a, a a progressive philosophy and vision of the future uh, for social change, they can easily be, be manipulated by right wing and fascist demagogues. And we're seeing that. You know, Sweden, the far right is. Uh, was just uh, made huge grounds uh, in, in their political system. We have it here in the United States with the Trump movement and these uh, oath keepers and the far right wing groups. And, uh, you know, the right is gaining ground in numerous European countries. And, and that's a failure of the left to have a vision and, and, and uh, you know, a failure to organize people uh, along progressive lines. And it's also in part the product of the you know McCarthy the legacy of McCarthyism and the Cold War and the demonization of communism and left wing ideologies in the West mm-hmm. you know those are alternatives to capitalism if capitalism is failing um, you know in the past people uh, developed socialist parties and movements and the you know idea of nationalizing industry and developing a a more state run economy. But that those ideas, you know, have been kind of, uh, you know, discredited because of the Cold War and McCarthy era and so the problem in the Soviet Union. So people lack a vision. That's a disturbing thing. They're angry at their lead and they lack a vision, mm-hmm. uh, though, for the future and organizing principles and alternative economic program. And as such, they're easily manipulated by, by fascist demagogues and they fall prey to, to conspiracy theory like the QAnon 
Uh, yeah. it's, it's a directionless. So it's it's a disturbing and dangerous period, I think, in well, our history. You know, and on the on the topic of you know, ceding uh, the ground to right wing politicians to to make some of these suggestions. You know, you had on Tuesday Hungary's foreign minister saying the EU should stop suggesting new sanctions on Russia. Yesterday, you had the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban saying the existing sanctions could be scrapped, and so. You know, I, I wanted to ask what would have to happen for these options to be discussed seriously. But I feel like this can be also rolled into uh, the next question I had for you, which is Italy's elections coming up this weekend. You know, it's predicted that these elections are going to usher in an extremely right wing, very Eurosceptical government. Uh, this follows an election in Sweden that, uh, you know, that, that brought in a similar government. And so I wonder, you know, what this is going to mean for solidarity in this sanctions regime and yeah what what it means for for Europe and as you say the the possibility that a response to you know the left will not be able to pull together uh, an adequate and principled response to these conditions and so it'll only be the right that's saying anything that the people can make any sense of uh, yeah it, because the fail you know what you see is the failure of the center and the center left uh, you know, like with the sanctions policy, it's mainly been the you know right wing governments or right wing. Even here in the United States, it's conservative libertarian like uh, uh, Rand Paul has been the main, I think, one of the only opponents of those sanctions in Congress. Uh, you know, people like Bernie Sanders and, and Alexandria Cortez have supported them. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, and I, I think there are a lot of people in Europe and America who question the Russia policy, question the sanctions. So it's these right-wing politicians who are adept uh, in seeing, even just from a public opinion point of view, that many of the population is against this policy, and they're seizing on that. And they're, they're the, well, I mean, part of it may be because, I mean, Putin is more of a right-wing leader, so they don't really have anything against him. They, they kind of see affinity with him on a number of the issues. You know, I mean, Putin is against... Uh, the, you know, I guess you call it the council cult, cancel culture. Mm -hmm. It's like multiculturalism. Uh, he, you know, support the Russian Orthodox Church, and mm -hmm. he aligned with more conservative. You know, his economic program. I mean, they have a flat tax of thirteen percent in Russia. I mean, he's no socialist at all. He, he's he's a basically center right leader. Mm -hmm. So you know, leaders like Viktor Orban or perhaps some right wing politician here in the United States, they kind of see eye to eye with Putin on a lot of the issues. Um, and there, yeah, I mean, the sanctions in itself is, was based on uh, fraudulent pretexts. Uh, I won't go into it now, but it was a story about, you know, the original Magnitsky Act, uh, mm -hmm. uh, assumed that this guy, Sergei Magnitsky, was some kind of great whistleblower who was being falsely imprisoned by the Russian state, but actually he was carrying out a tax scam by an oligarch named uh, William Browder. And they were the ones lobbying the U.S. Congress for these sanctions. So there was really no basis behind these sanctions or legitimate purpose behind them in the first place. And I think, yeah, there's a significant percentage of people in Europe and the United States who question that policy. And again, yeah, it's the right wing politicians that are seizing on this. And that's a part of my point about the failure of the left. Mm -hmm. uh, they've failed on so many levels and they've just aligned with uh, the U.S. and Western governments and they're uh, drumming up this new Cold War 
and drumming up a potential conflict that could escalate into a nuclear war. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, what does the left represent to many people? They represent the status quo and, you know, they, they've retreated. As we know, the Democratic Party in the U.S. has retreated from helping the working class and they focus on identity politics and getting more minorities in positions of authority. But that doesn't help the average person who's struggling to feed his family or young people looking for a job or, you know, saddled in student debt. Uh, it's nice to have a woman vice president, but uh, if they can't get a decent job, uh, their life is not particularly good. So, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a similar situation in Europe. Uh, so it's just a, a failure. The left is coming to the fore and these right wing movements are seizing on the disaffection of the population. And in some part, I mean, I'm not, uh, I consider myself on the left, but on some policy, they are, you know, speaking sensibly, like with the Russia sanctions, mm-hmm. well, like, uh, you know, politicians like Rand Paul, to me, make a lot of sense on that issue. And even people like Orban, when they you know talk about the Russia, uh, I, I'm in agreement with a lot of they say, No, I don't agree with his overall worldview. Right. That was Jeremy Kuzmarov. He is managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of multiple books. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk about the war in Ethiopia and the African Union's demands to the UN General Assembly. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. As promised, I wanted to take a look now at developments in Ethiopia, where it is being reported that a major offensive, complete with mass mobilization, is underway. We are also going to talk about statements made by the president of the African Union at the UN General Assembly and ask whether the African continent is going to get the uh, geopolitical representation and power that it seeks in international bodies. Joining us for this conversation is Abayomi Azikiwe. He's editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Abayomi, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you once again for the invitation. So, you know, what is happening in Ethiopia has been overshadowed a little bit in the West, I think, by Ukraine. But it is being reported that Eritrea has started a major offensive along its border with Ethiopia. Eritreans are fighting alongside Ethiopian federal forces. This is all according to the TPLF, right? The TPLF and Ethiopian federal forces have been fighting for now the the better part of two years. I haven't seen yet whether Ethiopia or Eritrea have confirmed this action. Um, But a week ago, the BBC was reporting that Eritrea was mobilizing its military reserves, which would seem to support the timing here. Eritrea has dismissed some of these mobilization reports. And so I wonder what you can tell us uh, about what what is really going on there up at the the northern border and what it indicates. It's a very um, tense situation. As you recall, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the TPLF leadership uh, announced that they were willing to sit down and work on a negotiated uh, peace agreement uh, with the central government in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Yet, uh, they have uh, been accused uh, by uh, the Ethiopian government of launching yet another offensive uh, 
Uh, they themselves, uh, the TPLF, uh, which is supported uh, by the United States uh, administration of uh, President Joe Biden, uh, said uh, that uh, Eritrea had mobilized uh, people up to the age of 55, and they had launched a major offensive in the Tigray uh, region. Uh, yet, uh, this has been denied uh, by the central government uh, in uh, Addis Ababa. So you have these conflicting uh, reports about what is going on, but I think it reflects uh, the tension uh, that is still ongoing uh, in the northern part of Ethiopia. It also reflects the fact that uh, the TPLF uh, at the uh, agents of the United States is really not interested in any type of uh, viable and sustainable peace agreement with the uh, Ethiopian government of uh, Prime Minister uh, Ahmed mm-hmm. Abi. And this uh, mirrors in many ways uh, what is going on uh, in Ukraine. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the situation in the Horn of Africa has been overshadowed uh, by developments in Ukraine. Uh, and in Ukraine, for example, uh, there's been a consistent pattern on the part of the Biden administration to prevent any viable peace negotiations or lessening of hostilities uh, in uh, regard to the situation between Russia and uh, Ukraine. So I think uh, the Biden administration uh, is just as much uh, warmongers as uh, the other previous administrations uh, over the last uh, two and a half decades in the United States. Mm hmm. Yeah, certainly they've seemed uh, less interested in in negotiating with uh, you know different parties we have tensions with right now than people had hoped. You know, thinking of, of Iran also. Well, can you talk to us a little bit more about what happened with this uh, peace negotiations? Because you know we we had had a ceasefire between the Ethiopian government and the TPLF for five months, but that fell apart with fighting resuming in a sort of scattershot way at the end of August, both sides as usual, accusing the other of striking first. Um, but, you know, there, there had been hopes that the African Union could broker uh, fruitful negotiations. Um, and as you say, that fell apart. I see reports that accuse Ethiopia of walking away. And I also see reports uh, that the TPLF was never serious, uh, that it came in with, with unrealistic preconditions and wanted to sort of sideline the African Union and instead have the United States play a major role. And so I wonder what you, you know, what, what you make of how serious this process ever was for both parties and, and what really um, scuttled the chances? I think uh, the intransigence of the uh, Tigray People's Liberation Front uh, starting the war uh, in uh, 2020, uh, it was totally uncalled for, completely unnecessary. Uh, the central government had asked the Tigray province, uh, which in many ways has autonomy uh, from the central government because it's a federal uh, system that is in operation in Ethiopia that was actually established uh, when the TPLF uh, was in power inside the country between 1991 and 2018. They only asked them to postpone uh, the provincial elections uh, because of the uh, pandemic. Uh, that was having uh, so many, creating so many problems inside of uh, Ethiopia. Uh, they refused to do that. And then, of course, they launched an attack on the Ethiopian uh, Defense Forces uh, in November of 2020. And that is what started the war. Mm. Uh, they uh, were defeated uh, in terms of driving them out of uh, areas of the Amhara and Afar. Uh, provinces uh, in Ethiopia. And uh, the Ethiopian uh, government, which was under a lot of pressure 
by the civilian population and also by the militia groups uh, among the Amhara in particular uh, to carry the war all the way to uh, Mekele, the capital of the Tigray province, to uh, finish off, uh, so to speak, uh, at least militarily, uh, the uh, threat of the uh, TPLF. Uh, the prime minister uh, wanted to negotiate some type of settlement uh, because uh, there was a lot of pressure on him from the international community to do so. Uh, but this has not worked out. And unfortunately, uh, it appears as if uh, tensions are escalating and there could be even a broader conflict that can bring in uh, the Eritrean uh, military forces in alliance uh, with the federal forces of Ethiopia against the uh, TPLF. So it's a very, very dangerous situation that is in existence right now because we have to remember as well that uh, Ethiopia, along with Somalia and uh, parts of Kenya, are suffering from enormous uh, food deficits. Mm -hmm. uh, there's drought in the region. Uh, so these issues need to be addressed. These humanitarian issues need to be addressed as opposed to uh, the threats that are continuing uh, from the TPLF. Uh, you know, if the TPLF wasn't really serious about this this prospect from the start, you know, what what could international, uh, the international community, outside stakeholders, whatever you want to call them, what could people do to try to bring this conflict to an end? Uh, especially because, as you say, the fighting doesn't help the people in any region of Ethiopia, and they are already, you know, is, is only exacerbating, uh, you know, existing uh, famine conditions, existing hunger that was caused by, uh, you know, natural disasters. Yes. Well, the uh, Tigray uh, people uh, represent, um, it has been said, approximately 6% of the overall population of Ethiopia, where there are many different uh, ethnic groups and nationalities. Uh, that's in part why they have a federal system uh, inside the country. Uh, but uh, with the outside influence of the United States, uh, it adds a whole different dimension uh, to the conflict. What it means is that they're going to be supplied uh, with diplomatic cover, uh, with military support, and they also have the whole apparatus of the Western corporate and governmental, uh, governmental media uh, to, uh, in fact, uh, propagate uh, the TPLF cause and to support uh, what the TPLF is doing against uh, the government in Ethiopia. We've heard the threats uh, from uh, the United Nations um, um, uh, representative ambassador, uh, Greenfield, against uh, Ethiopia uh, on the continent, as well as within the halls of the uh, United Nations. Uh, we've seen uh, what the impact has been of uh, others uh, who, in fact, are envoys uh, for the Horn of Africa representing the United States. Um, Michael Hammer, for example, is a U.S. envoy for the Horn of Africa. And what we hear repeatedly are threats uh, to the Ethiopian government. And there's really no uh, effort to sit down and have a logical discussion, a reasonable discussion on how to normalize the situation inside the country. There's also uh, the whole issue of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam Project, uh, which is a major uh, issue in relationship to uh, Ethiopia and Egypt. And also Sudan, the military regime in Sudan, unfortunately has been influenced by the um, civilian uh, former military government in Egypt. So all these factors 
are creating a very, very volatile uh, situation in the Horn of Africa. And uh, until the African Union uh, can muster the type of uh, political will and strength uh, to force both sides to sit down and have negotiations, this is going to continue. But anytime you have uh, the U.S. government uh, and uh, the whole military apparatus of the United States uh, promoting a particular issue, it's very, very difficult uh, outside of some type of military uh, resolution uh, to bring about a peaceful settlement. Uh, we've seen it repeatedly, uh, not only in Africa, but throughout the entire international community. Uh, they appear uh, to benefit at least politically in the short term on a domestic level from continuing these conflicts. Uh, it provides a rationale uh, for increased uh, military spending, and that increased military spending uh, takes away uh, from the social spending that's needed right now inside the United States for education, uh, for environmental quality, uh, so for ending racial animosity, uh, addressing uh, police misconduct uh, in the urban areas, and so many other issues that need to be addressed domestically that are not being addressed uh, by the Biden administration. They just passed this anti-inflation, climate change, prescription uh, drug uh, reduction cost bill. And uh, there's so many uh, clauses in it, for example, hiring uh, 70 to 80,000 new internal revenue service agents. Uh, you know, all this type of stuff is just a diversion uh, from what is actually needed inside the United States as well as internationally. So I think uh, the problem in, in many of these conflicts internationally is the government in Washington, D.C. and uh, the uh, financial interests on Wall Street. Let me ask you, speaking of the African Union, uh, about some comments that were made by African Union chair and president of Senegal, Macky Sall, at the UN General Assembly earlier this week. During his address, Sall said, I have come to say that Africa has suffered enough the burden of history, that it does not want to be the breeding ground of a new Cold War, but rather a pole of stability and opportunity open to all its partners on a mutually beneficial basis. He, of course, called for a de-escalation in Ukraine and a negotiated solution, but he repeated the, you know, working with all partners declaration, saying Africa was a continent determined to work with all of its partners to address the continent's needs. Um, I think obviously they are talking about China, they are talking about Russia, and I want to get into some of his other statements, but what should people understand about, uh, about these comments? Well, they're trying to drag the entire African Union region into this conflict on the side of the uh, Pentagon and NATO in Ukraine. Uh, that, that is really what their foreign policy objectives are. And I think his comments echo those of uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa of the Republic of South Africa, who was in uh, Washington, D.C. on Friday and Saturday. He met with uh, President Biden as well as Vice President Kamala Harris. They put forward over 30 issues. Uh, and a lot of those issues are very similar to the comments of uh, Senegalese President and AU Chair uh, Mackey Saul uh, earlier this week in New York City. and. Uh, that those comments were met uh, with an admonishment um, from uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, who said uh, just uh, on Tuesday that no one should be able to stay neutral uh, and that everyone in the United Nations should condemn Russia uh, for a special military intervention in Ukraine. So you see the positions are far apart in that regard. Mm -hmm. And I don't think uh, even the, the African countries, for example, Ghana and Nigeria, who did uh, 
uh, make some uh, statements uh, back in February uh, when the war first um, escalated. Uh, even them, even those uh, countries uh, who are more pro-Western have said very little uh, since uh, the special military uh, intervention operation uh, has uh, begun. Because a lot of the people on the African continent, it appears, are not sympathetic to the United States position, but are more sympathetic to the Russian position in this uh, conflict. People have suffered as a result of the uh, sanctions against Russia, which has a lot to do uh, with the uh, food deficits, uh, the unavailability of uh, fertilizers, uh, agricultural products such as grain, uh, that uh, the African countries, uh, even countries like Egypt, are heavily reliant upon Russia and Ukraine uh, in regard to their international trade. Uh, and the Biden administration uh, is focusing more on the conflict in Ukraine as opposed to the food deficits in the Horn of Africa. So I think uh, the President Mackey Saul's comments uh, really do reflect uh, the uh, positions of most of the governments on the African continent. Now, these governments, most of them are very moderate, even conservative, and want to have good relations with the United States. Mm -hmm. But there is a breaking point uh, where you cannot uh, tell people that they can't trade with Russia, they can't trade with China, mm -hmm. uh, that they have to uh, be reliant upon the United States, uh, which is providing almost nothing except uh, uh, military uh, uh, interventions in Africa and other geopolitical regions around the world. Mm -hmm. I also want to ask, we don't have too much time left, but I wanted to ask about uh, some of Saul's other, um, uh, they were being characterized as his demands to the to the UNGA. But in particular, I thought it was interesting that he said, look, we, Africa shouldn't be on the political sidelines anymore. We should have more power in multilateral organizations on the UN Security Council, for example, uh, in the G20. He also uh, said, you know, African nations should be allowed to explore their oil and gas reserves. Uh, we shouldn't suffer to meet global climate challenges that I that they didn't cause uh, what do you what do you think it would mean for Africa and the world uh, were these things to come to pass do you, do you think soon we will see the African continent have a little bit more leverage uh, in some of these multinational bodies like the UN I think it's inevitable I think uh, the US government uh, is really uh, in a desperate situation uh, right now uh, they want to deflect attention away from the deepening crisis, economic and social crisis inside this country, inside the European Union countries. And uh, what uh, President Mackey Saul is saying is reflective of the governments on the continent uh, that represent 1.3 billion people. Uh, if there is to be a transition uh, to renewable energy uh, production and resources, the African continent is not responsible uh, for uh, the CO2 emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions that are causing so many uh, problems throughout the world, the extreme weather events, the drought, uh, the forest fires, uh, the flooding. Uh, it's a very, very uh, perilous situation uh, for billions of people around the world. If we look at what's going on in Pakistan, if we look what's going on in the Horn of Africa, in uh, Southern Africa, uh, and also right here in the United States, uh, we can see in Jackson, Mississippi, a city 
that has an 83% African-American population mm -hmm. and the people cannot drink the water mm -hmm. in the capital city of a state in the southern part of the United States. The United States government has an obligation to directly intervene uh, to ensure that this crisis uh, is resolved. Yet they're more concerned about what the government in, in Russia and the government in Iran are doing, as opposed to uh, trying to correct its own uh, foreign policy and its own domestic policy that's creating s so much suffering and death mm -hmm. uh, for millions and millions of people around the world. Abayomi Azikiwe is the editor of Pan-African Newswire. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I think we're going to go straight into the next conversation we had planned here without a break because I, I have a lot of topics that I want to cover. Uh, I We lured our next guest on with promises to talk about cryptocurrency, which we are going to start with. Uh, but I want to squeeze in a couple of questions about a, a possible commercial real estate crash in the United States and also the cascading effects of U.S. interest rate hikes on some international markets. We are joined now by Robert Hockett. He He's Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. He's also the Senior Counsel at Westwood Capital and a Fellow of the Century Foundation. Robert, thanks for joining us again. Hey, Michelle. Really great to be with you again. Let's start with crypto and this man named Do Kwan, who is apparently the individual most associated with the crypto crash this spring. This is according to the Washington Post. I did not know who Do Kwan was before last week, but I did know Terra, uh, the stable coin that was supposed to be secure and pegged to the US dollar, and its sister cryptocurrency, Luna. Kwan developed both of those. He is now wanted by Korean police who have asked Interpol to help find him. Uh, yesterday, uh, they apparently had not listed what he's wanted for, but investors say he defrauded them in promoting these coins. And it is Terra and Luna that are blamed for triggering the crypto collapse in the spring that wiped out more than a trillion uh, US dollars, actual dollars, in value from that market and, and really uh, slammed the values of cryptocurrencies across the board. Quan, as I mentioned earlier in the show, says he's not on the run. I am not aware of him turning himself in. So it seems like a little bit of sort of uh, semantic tap dancing. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> tell me, if Quan is wanted for fraud because he promoted this thing, uh, this concept called a stable coin, which is a computer program that manages purchases of cryptocurrencies to maintain a dollar peg, as I understand it. Um, mm -hmm. So he's he if he's wanted for fraud, it's because he promoted this thing that did not have the value that he said it did. Yeah. Could this I mean, are people pushing Bitcoin just not guilty of fraud because Bitcoin isn't at zero right now, but could be at any time? Like how is how is this fraudulent while other cryptocurrencies aren't is my question. Yeah, I think that's a sort of perfectly framed uh, uh, question, Michelle. I mean, what people I think ought to sort of um, maybe sort of uh, attend to or sort of focus on is that the business model itself is essentially fraudulent in a certain sense. And usually it's just the first one that comes across or, or the first one that crashes that becomes the one that gives its name to the fraud in question, even though the fraud in question ought to be 
attributed to the industry as a whole. So, for example, we all know that the name Ponzi uh, sort of connotes something you know, underhanded or something fraudulent. Um, and we all know vaguely or more or less sort of what the, the nature of Ponzi's fraud was. But what we don't tend to talk about is how essentially the financial markets in which Charles Ponzi was operating were all essentially structured in the same way as the Ponzi transactions. It's just that we have attached his name to it, just like we attached the name Coca-Cola to most colas since Coke came along first. So that's the first thing to note. The next thing, I suppose, is to say a little bit more about the, the sense in which the model itself is fraudulent. Now, I think the best way sort of intuitively to grasp the sense in which the model is fraudulent is to compare it directly to its most immediate predecessor, and that is the money market mutual fund, which most of us, even you guys, might be old enough to remember because it was a fairly popular sort of investment vehicle until the crash of 2008. But essentially, all a money market mutual fund was was a mutual fund where the fund managers guaranteed that every share would continue to be worth exactly $1. And then you could spend money. You could actually write checks off of your money market mutual fund as if it were a bank account. And so, in effect, they promised, in effect, to uh, replicate all of the features of a bank account. Now, here's the problem with that. You might say, well, why would people have bought into money market mutual funds if all they were was bank accounts? Well, the thing is they could offer a few bells and whistles in addition that bank accounts cannot. In other words, in this case, they could offer a higher rate of return. And the only thing that made that possible was by not being regulated as banks, mm -hmm. right? Because banks are regulated in a way to sort of keep them boring and safe at the same time, because to be safe just is to be boring. Mm -hmm. So in effect, the money market mutual fund industry was saying, you can have it all. You can have the safety of a bank account and the excitement of a high rate of return. And that's just financially impossible. It's like saying you can have a round square. Um, and so we found that we, you know, we found out what the consequence of that business model was when the very first things that began to crash in 2008 during that crisis were the money market mutual funds. Now, a stable coin is just the same thing renamed Mm. And it sort of makes use of some new technologies, but the technologies are inessential, right? The technology doesn't make any difference. The, what matters is the financial structure. And the financial structure of a so-called stable coin is it's essentially an amassing of financial assets that are invested here and there in risky ways that can generate returns. So then they could promise either higher returns or some sort of stability of value along with some kind of snazzy new way of making payments through some sort of cyber system or whatever while still having supposedly the safety of a bank account. But these things are not regulated like banks. And if they were, they would be much less, they would be much more boring than they're able to be marketed as being right now. And so of course, at some point, one of them fails. And of course, that triggers a crash more widely because people realize, hey, wait a minute, it's the same model that's being used all by all the other so-called stable coins as well. And so in effect, what we're seeing happening in the so-called stable coin realm right now is a sort of a mini version of what happened in the money market mutual fund industry back in 2008. And yet Colorado, I learned yesterday, is going to accept <laughs> yeah. cryptocurrencies as payment for taxes. And as you say, these, yeah. these are not regulated yet. As far as I know, congressional mm -hmm. action on crypto regulation is still pending. So mm -hmm. what does this say? What does this say about <laughs> what is Colorado doing? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, basically, there are a couple of other sort of sovereign or semi-sovereign uh, entities that have been doing this, too, as you know, like the, the, the country of El Salvador, mm-hmm. whose president is, um, you know, kind of thought to have lots of mob connections and organized crime connections, uh, decided that they were going to make um, uh, Bitcoin itself one of the national currencies about a year and a half ago. Um, and, of course, Mayor Adams, our own beloved Mayor Adams in New York City, has said that, you know, he wants crypto to be used in um, uh, city transactions in New York. And what they all have in common, I think, is you've got politicians who are sort of trying to uh, um, be, be identified by the populace as sort of forward-looking and progressive and with it and modern or even futuristic, you know, rather than Eric Adams just being a cop who became a mayor, which is sort of more boring. Or, you know, in Colorado, oh, we're the sort of independent, you know, skier state. We people live in the mountains here and everybody has facial hair. So it's a really cool state, you know, and now we're going to do crypto in our state tax payments. Um, and it's it's just it's sort of faddishness, I think, that's designed basically to kind of uh, build up or convey a certain kind of image of this is like not your everyday politician, right? He or she is a politician with a little extra mm-hmm. twist. But the problem with it, of course, there's sort of a counterpart to the problem that afflicted money market mutual funds and that afflict stable coins more generally. And that is you purchase that kind of air of kind of with itness or kind of coolness or whatever at the expense of subjecting yourself to a great deal of risk, really substantial risk that people don't adequately appreciate until the risk itself materializes. So what's going to happen? Well, at some point, the country of El Salvador is going to go bankrupt because all of the crypto assets will suddenly plummet in value, or the city of New York will have to ask the federal government for a bailout again, like it did in the glory days of the 1970s, or the state of Colorado will have to say, can you guys cut us a break, federal government? We don't have any state revenue anymore uh, because something happened to this weird crypto stuff. And we were babes in the woods who got fooled. Um, that's what they're ultimately risking, or that's in effect the price that they're paying for this kind of air of, of again, with itness or um, futuristicness or whatever that they're trying to, I, I suppose, trying to trade on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess you would imagine maybe they'll accept these transactions in cryptocurrencies and then immediately convert them to to dollars. So maybe it's not yeah. as bad as other things like uh, you know IRAs planning to hold cryptocurrencies as people's uh retirement investment um sure but yeah it just it just makes all it makes it all seem like a fiction right it makes the whole financial system seem uh like kind of a big house of cards which i think to some degree it is Um, it kind of is i mean it's not it's not an accident by the way um that probably the greatest economists of the 19th century who everybody's always afraid to mention the name of Karl marx referred to all this stuff as fictitious capital Mm -hmm. (laughs) somehow we lost that we lost that phrase we don't seem to nobody seems to use the phrase fictitious capital anymore but there's never been i think a better name uh for this aspect of 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 the wealth of a society it's a little bit all fictitious capital it's a little bit like religion right like religions that are old not to denigrate anyone's beliefs right but if you are not a believer uh religions that are a couple thousand years old uh, really when you boil them down are are as silly as the ones like your next door neighbor has just gotten involved with you know hey robert i want to hold you we're coming up on a station break here i want to hold you over to the next hour and just ask you very quickly about uh commercial real estate in the united states so please stay with me here we're talking to robert hockett of cornell university in new york you're listening to political misfits on radio sputnik we're live in dc we're going to come right back
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I've been talking to Professor of Law and Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University, Robert Hockett. Robert, we have been talking about cryptocurrency, but I wanted to shift gears and ask you about um, something that I feel like has been it's a topic that I feel like has been in the air for the last couple of years, and that is the prospect of a commercial real estate crash in the U.S. Um, what brought it to mind today for me is uh, this story in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about an exodus of Chinese investment from U.S. commercial real estate. So the paper writes that Chinese firms for years were among the most aggressive buyers of U.S. luxury hotels, office towers, and other commercial real estate. Now they are running for the exits. They have sold a net $23.6 billion of U.S. commercial properties since the start of 2019, which is a dramatic turnaround uh, from uh, between 2013 and 2018 when Chinese firms were net buyers of nearly $52 billion of U.S. commercial properties. So. You know, China is in the middle of its own economic turmoil. You have these Chinese companies uh, that have been big buyers of commercial real estate exiting the sector. And of course, now um, following the pandemic, there's been a shift in some industries to remote work that might never shift back. And I, I really wonder if the the value of some of these properties will never recover. And so I, I wonder how seriously you think this risk is. Uh, and, and if it is serious, what happens if we see a commercial real estate crash in the U.S.? Well, I think it's potentially very, very serious, uh, Michelle. I mean, many of the world's worst financial crises going way back literally hundreds of years um, have been crises that involve, on the one hand, uh, real estate, and on the other hand, uh, financial assets. The worst are always the ones that sort of combine both. That happened in 1928-29 here. It happened, of course, in the early 1990s uh, in Japan and Scandinavia, sort of famously. And then, of course, it famously happened here in the U.S. in the lead up to 2008 because there was real estate on the one hand and, again, financial markets on the other. So here we have a kind of a similar situation where, once again, uh, there's been a real estate boom and a real estate bubble on the one hand. And then there's been a financial uh, bubble uh, on the other hand. And both of them are sort of imperiled. What makes this one particularly scary or makes it you know, look like it could become one of the worst ones in history, depending on you know what happens next, is precisely the fact that, A, uh, it involves a massive influx of foreign capital into the commercial real estate markets, which are indeed sort of looking shaky for the very reasons that you mentioned. It's just sort of unclear how much commercial real estate is going to have to be used as we come out of the pandemic. You know, It looks like we're not going to go back to the way things were before uh, the pandemic. And the only question is sort of how close to that do we become? But there are other reasons to, to worry, especially about uh, commercial real estate in the U.S. right now in this connection as well. Um, another of them is that commercial real estate tends to be regulated or overseen at the local or state level rather than by any federal, say, financial regulators. Mm. And for that reason, uh, commercial real estate in big cities in the U.S. has been a, a sort of favorite um, investment vehicle uh, for money launderers and organized crime uh, for ages, but especially over the last 10 to 20 years. 
years. It's no accident uh, that America's favorite uh, criminal um, right now is a, a you know former commercial real estate baron. Mm-hmm, yes. He's still <laughs> yeah. oh, that's that's no accident, right? And that's no accident that that guy would be sort of associated with international organized crime mm-hmm. from all over the world. Um, a lot of scandals um, began to sort of come to light even as early as 2013, 2014 here in New York when it turned out that all sorts of notorious uh, organized crime figures from various parts of the world um, had lots of money locked into commercial real estate in New York, largely oftentimes in condos, very expensive condos, multi-million dollar condos that they didn't didn't live in and that nobody lived in. And there have even been calls in New York City, including by, by myself, to make those usable uh, to people who don't have affordable housing and are render, have been rendered homeless in New mm-hmm. York. Like, why is there all this empty real estate? But the fact that there's so much empty real estate itself tells you something, that people are treating these as investment vehicles in which to park or hide oftentimes illicit money precisely because it's not regulated or overseen in the way that financial transactions or financial investments are, at least in some corners of the financial system. Uh, and so there seems to be lots and lots and lots of Chinese, Russian, uh, Saudi, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, Qatarian, um, and of course, good old-fashioned American, British, European, uh, Japanese, and so forth money. Sorry to interrupt. This was, like a, this was a big focus of the Pandora Papers last year, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Precisely. Um, and so if there's suddenly now money being you know, kind of pulled out quite rapidly just after residential real estate markets have peaked and begun to sort of turn down in other parts of the country, um, you know, the question is how much more of that happens and how rapidly might it happen. But mm-hmm. one reason to think that it could happen quite rapidly is the reason that you yourself noted, Michelle, which is that, yeah, there have been some significant economic difficulties um, uh, sort of surfacing in, in China. And it's probably growing increasingly tempting to bring some of that money back especially given that Chinese real estate itself has been tottering uh, of late. And so the same sort of real estate barons or magnates who have been investing in U.S. commercial real estate might want to be bringing some of that money back to China to shore up China's own suddenly flagging, if not plummeting, uh, commercial real estate markets. Let me ask you, Robert, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Uh, so just indulge me with this sort of pie in the sky sure. um, um, question. You know, if you do start to see uh, this uh, largely empty real estate, well, not largely, but too empty, right? Too empty commercial real estate plummet in value. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we, we've been talking about other instances in which, uh, you know, massive government invention uh, in, investment could have mm-hmm. deflationary properties, you know, does it present an opportunity for the government to, you know, stabilize this um, sector by doing Mm -hmm. exactly what you propose, perhaps, well, along the lines of what you propose, uh, Mm -hmm. investing in it, creating affordable housing, creating places for people to live? I mean, is that a solution that sort of kills two birds with one stone, whether or not it's realistic to envision our current (laughs) government undertaking it? Yeah, no, I think it's it, that's a brilliant idea, brilliant uh, thought, and it's it would it would replicate another pattern um, that sort of characterizes past episodes of this sort. At least when the governments that have been in power have been, you know, relatively or reasonably interested in the well-being of the general, you know, the public at large, rather than particular sectional interests. But it's it, what typically happens in a case like this is there's massive abuse in a particular pocket of a particular asset market. The abuse leads to the inflation of a huge bubble, which then eventually bursts and causes, you know, massive uh, suffering. Uh, a government that's, you know, again public oriented then steps in 
rescues the market in question to prevent it from becoming a total disaster, but then attaches strings to the rescue, which are basically of the, of the sort that you just know, right? Mm -hmm. They say, okay, we're going to keep this, this area, this sector more safe in the future, and we're also going to make it more available and affordable uh, to ordinary folk who aren't, you know, financiers or, or sort of, you know, professional fraudsters. Mm -hmm. um, and then things are kind of okay in that market for decades to come, and the fraudsters next move on to something new like crypto. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no reason in principle, and there's no reason in, in sort of financial theory, let's say, why that couldn't happen in this case too. And suddenly we have affordable housing available for everybody and we have a better regulated commercial real estate market and residential real estate market. Um, now, but as you say, right, given who's, um, you know, given the governments that are in office uh, right now, or even the Democrats are, you know, not as progressive as we might have wished, <laughs> um, it's, it's it's difficult to say how hopeful we should be that anything like this would happen. My guess would be something a bit like it happens if a if a real disaster strikes, um, but it won't. It'll nevertheless be sort of disappointing. It won't be full Bernie or full uh, AOC. It'll be more like you know Bernie Light. That's to say uh, Joe Biden esque. I mean, I feel <laughs> like you know at least step one is at least uh, recognizing that it is a matter of political will. You know, and so to that yeah. extent, it. Yeah. it if it's, if, you know, that simple, then, you know, it's an easier lever to push on, maybe. That Just was... Like Go ahead. <laughs> Just like Alcoholics Anonymous. First step <laughs> is to recognize problem. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, I mean, exactly. All right, Robert Hawkett, we're going to let you go. You're a professor of law and a professor of public policy at Cornell. You're a fellow at the Century Foundation. You're a senior counsel at Westwood Capital. We always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us on Political Misfits. And you're a treasure, Michelle. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm a treasure, everybody. You heard it here. Uh, we are going to go right into this next conversation about uh, who Robert referred to as our, our favorite criminal of the moment. We are going to talk about some big legal decisions in what I hate myself for calling classification gate this morning. Uh, this case does not appear to be going very well for Donald Trump. We will ask whether it matters that the key Russiagate informant was being paid by the FBI. And we will talk about the U.S. dropping in some global rankings of well-being and democracy. Joining us for this conversation is author and journalist Dan Lazar. Dan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with Trump, you know, the, the one of the day's big headlines. Yesterday, an appeals court overturned a prior judge's decision to block the Justice Department from accessing classified records taken from Mar-a-Lago, while a special master reviewed all the documents to weed out those that should be covered by attorney-client privilege, which seems pretty straightforward, but also by what was termed executive privilege, uh, which people took some issue to. And now it seems the appeals court has said, no, 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 the DOJ can go ahead with these classified documents and the special master will look through the ones that aren't classified to see which ones should be shielded because Donald Trump, the individual, has some rights as, you know, the client of an attorney, uh, not that Donald Trump, the president, necessarily does. Uh, so how significant do you think this decision is? Uh, oh, it's quite significant. I mean, it was, it was quite a rebuff to the uh, to the federal district uh, court judge who issued this uh, the original order. Mm -hmm. I mean, the uh, the appellate court, which, which by the way included uh, two Trump appointees, was uh, was pretty strong in emphasizing that she got it wrong mm -hmm. and that they they uh, they agreed with the with the DOJ's uh, criticism. So that's a that's a pretty tough thing. 
but you know, this this is going to go on for a long time. It's going to go on past the midterms, and the mm-hmm. midterms will change everything. So uh, you know, so I, this is just one. You know, this is one. You know, mid-sized development in what will be a long, long saga. Right. The other thing that keeps coming up here is how exactly uh, a document gets declassified. And so Donald Trump has been arguing uh, that as president, he has the power to declassify anything he wants, which appears to be partly true. And, you know, of course, John and I, my, my co-host, John Kiriakou, who knows quite a bit about classifications, um, you know, what he has been saying is this is sort of true. The president can start that process on anything he likes, but that is step one. And then other agencies, including the originating agency of the information, also get to weigh in. Um, so it's a process, right? It's, it's, the president can say, yeah, we should, we should declassify this. There are other people who need to agree. Um, so the president has a lot of power, but it is not a matter of, of you know, flipping a switch. Trump goes on, on Fox last night, uh, not doing himself any favors, uh, basically saying, no, there's no process. I just declassify it. He did actually say that line uh, just by thinking about it. And he seemed to suggest that merely by requesting to have the document sent to Mar-a-Lago would mean that they were through that transition process declassified, which of course is, is nuts. Uh, and so, again, it seems to be going very badly for Trump. As you say, it's a, it's a sort of medium-sized uh, decision. But uh, I, I don't know that, you know, inevitably when he says, well, I didn't know there was more to the process, that, that that's going to be acceptable. Well, <clears throat> I think that, <clears throat> sorry, I think I'm rather asking how a document gets declassified. Let's begin by asking how a document gets classified in the yeah. first place. I mean, there's a, there's a huge problem with overclassification. I mean, Michael Hayden, who was the uh, former uh, director of the CIA, once said that he got a Christmas card from someone in the CIA that carried a top secret oh classification. Oh, my God. You know, people, people have been complaining about this for for years and years. And part of the problem is that it's very easy to classify things. In fact, the system is kind of biased in favor of classifying mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, so therefore, you know, the, you know, the, the, the presumption seems to be, well, if it looks like it should be classified, go ahead and classify it, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe uh, the powers that be will declassify it somewhere down the road, but that never happens. Yeah. And the, and the, and the long, laborious process that, that people have described that Trump did not go through, you know, rarely works. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's long and laborious and highly ineffective. Uh, Trump's telephone call with Vladimir Zelensky in July 2019 was classified. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, even though it's like 12 people were listening in on the conversation and the contents were quickly leaked. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so first of all, there, there are, there are 100 classified documents. It's like 10,000 unclassified documents. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of amazed that there are that many unclassified documents in the entire U.S. government, number one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> number number two, we don't know what these classified documents. I mean, it sounds scary. They relate to you know to 
to, you know, to, to super secret, super sensitive defense information. But we have no idea what that means. Mm-hmm. I mean, all we have is the word of the CIA and you know what that is worth. So, you know, so I'm just highly skeptical and I haven't even gotten to the Espionage Act itself. Right. Right. I mean, if they turn out to all be Christmas cards, that is going to be, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't have the words to describe it. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see, as you say, the, there's no, no side in this is trustworthy, really. I mean, you know, you'll have people screaming at you, how dare you not trust, uh, uh, our, you know, our, our beautiful boys in law enforcement, but we're too, we're not, we're not dumb enough for that. Great. I mean, it's like, no, these, the CIA is, is, is among the least reliable sources. So, you know, mm-hmm. so, so, you know, so when they tell us that, you know, that the, that these documents are classified and they contain super duper, you know, sensitive defense uh, information. You know, I'm. We'll see. Me if I'm skeptical. Yeah, let's see. Let's <laughs> tell us what they actually are. Yeah, well, it'll be that process will be speeded up by this decision. So, I guess that is a little bit of good news. Um, the the other big news uh, from yesterday is these fraud charges from the New York Attorney General that were announced. Um, they seem like they could be pretty significant. I also uh, I think I remember a week ago it being reported that Trump. Trump's side had made a settlement offer that was rebuffed. Uh, and so I wonder what you predict for for this concurrent legal process that Trump finds himself in. I, I, again, I'm just really skeptical. And first of all, Letitia James <laughs> is a woman who is so ambitious. <laughs> it's positively scary. I mean, uh, and, and she's also has saw her mission, like a lot of Democrats, to, to get Trump out by hook or by crook. Mm. Uh, during her 2018 campaign for state AG, attorney general, um, she actually said uh, she called him an illegitimate president, an incompetent president, ill-equipped to serve the highest office of this land, an embarrassment, and that he, she would go after him with everything she had. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, so, you know, is, is this the way, is this the way prosecutors are supposed to act? I mean, isn't this, isn't this a, clear evidence of a politically motivated prosecution and isn't that really dangerous well this is the tension here right do you want this is a tension for me right because i i am not skeptical that uh you know the the trump organization uh you know inflated the value of real estate it held and did things that you shouldn't be allowed to do or shouldn't do or aren't allowed to do to get better uh loan terms and and the other things that uh that that he is accused of. What I wonder is, are we going to see Letitia James and other prosecutors uh, with a renewed interest in going after all the other big real estate developers in the country who are doing the same thing to the detriment of the communities around them? Or do we have to wait for all of those executives to run for president? Yes, I think exactly right. I mean, I'd be more, I'd be more outraged if Every other real estate oper- operator didn't do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's, you know, I mean, Trump is a case of hiding in plain sight. Uh, I mean, his entire career was based on hype. I mean, that was what Donald Trump was, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you, you, you know, he he went on a on late night TV shows constantly. He was a fixture there, you know, and he'd talk and he'd talk, and everyone would laugh, and everyone was sort of like, you know, he, he was kind of like. A, a funny, you know, outrageous con artist. And that's the way he was perceived. Everyone knew that. You know, there's a famous case where he sold, he went to sell his uh, penthouse apartment. 
And he, he lied outrageously about the square footage and he mm-hmm. exaggerated it, you know, uh, by two and a half times, if I recall. And, uh, but the, but the, the guy bought it anyway. Because it had Donald Trump's name to, name right. attached to it, right, and you know and that somehow enhanced the value. So you know, so so what Letitia James's problems you have has a very going to have a very hard time proving that there were victims that there were actual victims of fraud. She says she he he defrauded his lenders, mm-hmm. like uh, I think his Deutsche Bank bank was uh, was one of them. Uh, because by inflating his asset values, but Deutsche Bank didn't complain. In fact, Deutsche Bank renewed those loans. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, so it's very hard to prove fraud in this case. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I think with Trump, there is a real tendency to go. Uh, you know, to say like, well, yeah, but this is how he is. He's been doing it all along, which to me is not, uh, it doesn't sort of um, clear him, but rather, you know, indicts the process that that surrounds him, which I, I think is what we've been saying. But also, you know, I, I, there is maybe a case to be made that, as you say, you know, the, the, there's value and then there's value. It's like cryptocurrencies. It's the it, NFTs, right? They're as valuable as people say they are. There is a sort of ineffable quality to some of this stuff. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll see that as part of Trump's defense. Well, you know, I was listening, listening to your previous guest, mm-hmm. uh, who was, who was you know, pointing out, I think and he's, he's quite correct, that, that we could be facing a major real estate uh, meltdown. Mm-hmm. And if that, is, if that proves to be correct, it's because those values have been wildly inflated. Yeah. In other words, the entire field is infected with Trumpitis. Yeah. You know, and now, and now, now that, you know, that the, the Piper has got to be paid. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, so I just, I mean, just like this heavy moralism that, that the Democrats, you know, you know, uh, you know, always marshal in these cases. I mean, we've seen how it has been misused in the past. So again, I, I mean, mm. what would happen if some local prosecutor decided he's going to get Sputnik radio and he's going to, he's going to, you know, you know, put out a, a, a net dragging everything he can, you know, and, you know, and, and scrape the bottom of the barrel trying to find something, anything. And, you know, and, and this is, this is a, a classic political prosecution, mm-hmm. which should not be allowed. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about also, um, uh, speaking <laughs> of political prosecutions, I mean, sort of related, right? The, the fumes of Russiagate here and the Durham investigation. Um, it was revealed earlier this week and, and reported exclusively by right-wing media that Igor Danchenko, who is the man accused of lying to the FBI on multiple occasions and making up some of the allegations in the infamous Steele dossier, uh, it turns out that Danchenko, as of 2017, was a paid FBI informant. And the only disagreement between the FBI and his lawyers are whether uh, that employment ended in October 2020 or December 2020. Uh, The argument that his lawyers are making is that because Danchenko was being paid by the FBI, that means he wouldn't lie to them. I, I, I don't know. I, I was reminded when I was looking into the story, I, I was reminded that Danchenko told the New York Times in 2020 um, that he didn't present every claim in the Steele dossier as watertight. He said, I take it with a grain of salt. Who knows? Is it rumor? Is there more to it? 
obviously he is trying to to clear his name um but you know even if that is a truthful representation of the way he presented this information it it does seem like this investigation makes it look more and more like Russiagate was was whipped up specifically uh, by law enforcement and media, right? That you take these things that, you know, there are rumors that swirl around any politician and you, you know, see how many of them pass the sniff test. It seems like the sniff test in this case was just really um, done away with. And so I wonder how much, how, you know, what, what does it mean that this man was a paid FBI informant for, for three years? It means the FBI is play, was playing both sides of the tennis net. Mm. I mean, <laughs> they, yeah. were, they were feeding information to, to, uh, to, um, to Christopher Steele, the author of the famous Steele dossier. Mm-hmm. And they were, they, know, but they were paying Steele's top informant, mm-hmm. um, uh, who was, you know, who was regaling him with tales of, you know, of, uh, showers in the Moscow mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, was, it wasn't the Hilton. I forgot what it was. I should remember that. And the, um, you know, and then Jim Comey, you know, you know, is presenting the findings to Trump in a clear in, in January on January seventh, I think it was, mm-hmm. uh, uh, twenty twenty one, in what to me was a clear effort to induce his resignation, mm-hmm. to panic the guy into uh, into resigning. Even before he took the oath of office, yeah. So you know, so so the FBI is on on both sides of the net. It's you know, and it, this is just ridiculous. Uh, this you know, so it, it's incidents like this that we've got to keep uppermost in mind when we deal with you know when we when we just you know discuss things like the the moral logo. Uh, 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 documents mm-hmm. or his, or Letitia James's investigations his real estate uh, dealings. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, these 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 prosecutorial agencies or police agencies are themselves so profoundly compromised that we've got to be very skeptical of anything they say. And mm-hmm. and I know I know I'm, I know I'm sounding like I'm I'm defending Trump. Because uh, Trump's a real bad guy, but we saw how these agencies were misused, how they allowed themselves to be misused, how they tried to clearly were behaving in an unconstitutional manner that paved the way for the attempted coup d'état. You know, mm-hmm. four years, uh, four years later, almost to the day, in fact, mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 we've got to be very careful about you know about going along with this effort. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's it's hard to it, it, it's a matter of having a sort of consistent worldview and it gets tiring. Right. Especially when when you know, when you point some of these things out, as you say, you you get accused immediately of sympathizing with the figure at the center uh, of the um, storm. Right. Which, uh, you know, neither of us do. Neither of us are uh, supporters of Donald Trump would like to see him back in power. But that doesn't mean that the efforts undertaken to uh, prevent him from from, you know, taking power in the first place uh, were not destructive in themselves. They were very destructive. I mean, I I mean, I mean, Russiagate was an amazing episode. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, it was plainly a a, a CIA destabilization campaign of the most classic sort. Uh, And it, it turned pop politics upside down for something like three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a, 
it to me it was clearly an unconstitutional attempt to drive a a, a a legally elective, perhaps perhaps not democratically elected, but right. certainly legally elected president out of office. Mm. You know, that distinction uh, is sort of uh, relevant to the next question I have here. Uh, this didn't get a lot of discussion, I don't think, when, when it came out in July. Um, but in July, the United Nations Office of Sustainable Development dropped the U.S. in its global rankings to 41st worldwide. So that's down from its previous ranking of 32nd, which is a pretty big collapse, actually. Um, this methodology encompasses these 17 sustainable development goals, uh, which I recall talking about uh, quite a lot when I was in uh, Kazakhstan around when they were announced. Uh, I don't know if it was maybe a decade ago. Um, the goals include things like ending poverty and hunger, goals about environmental protection, equality and quality in education and health care and more. And in this sort of uh, sweeping uh, sort of ranking, the United States finds itself between Cuba and Bulgaria, both of which are widely regarded as being in the category of developing countries. Uh, the Economist, not noted for criticizing things like big money interests in politics, uh, regarded the U.S. in its uh, recent survey of democracies as a flawed democracy. And, um, you know, it was a short column in The Guardian that sort of synthesized these uh, these rankings, noted that even the Financial Times, again, like not a firebrand uh, outlet, concluded that the United States and the United Kingdom are best viewed as poor societies with a few rich people. Um, of course, uh, those few rich people happen to be uh, far, far overrepresented in our government. Um, I, I mean, uh, the questions here seem to have obvious answers. You know, how is this going to change? What do we do to wake people up? But I, I just wanted to get your sort of reflections on on these rankings. And also, I guess, how the United States manages to, I guess, avoid any consequences for this slide so far that in terms of its like global image. Well, I think that I think that's actually actually I disagree. I think it is it is facing consequences. I mean, first of all, number one is that as a as that longevity and uh, that that China has recently passed the U.S. in terms of a longevity mm -hmm. average lifespan, which is pretty remarkable. Um, uh, the U.S. Uh, longevity draw has dropped nearly three years mm -hmm. in the last two years, um, which is catastrophic. I mean, Amer American society is deeply dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I mean, th things are really off the charts. I mean, uh, health is plummeting, longevity, uh, even things like car crashes are, are totally out of whack. Mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, uh, poverty is, uh, is, a, is, is, is growing. Uh, ordinary people are under incredible economic stress. The, um, the, uh, the real estate boom is essentially pushing uh, housing prices out of reach mm -hmm. uh, of, of much of the working population with the result that people are, are spending, you know, uh, devoting more and more of their income to simply keeping a roof over, the, over their head. And it's causing real hardship, mm -hmm. real pain. I guess, um, I, guess I mean... And, and government just isn't, just, just isn't responsive. 
No, I guess what I mean is all of these things are happening. Certainly you feel all of these effects as a member of American society. Uh, and yet it seems like we are still taken seriously when, you know, Joe Biden gets up to address the UNGA and talk. You know, we, we are still for some reason, and maybe it's only for the short term, uh, not sort of laughed out of the room when we stand up to lecture other nations about, um, you know, democracy and treating people equally and respecting human rights and the like. And I, I wonder if... If that is ever going to catch up or if our, you know, nuclear arsenal will prevent other nations from, uh, you know, d dismissing us the way the developing world is so often dismissed. Nuclear weapons are effective against, <laughs> against <laughs> I don't know. public opinion. <laughs> you, really, you really can't uh, can't change the, an opinion poll by, by threatening to nuke the country in question. No, I think I think I think it is catching up quite dramatically. I mean, I think that, I think the uh, that that the, the 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 U.S. the U.S. policy in the Ukraine is 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 remarkably unpopular uh, across the world. Uh, people don't believe the U.S. They're very skeptical. They see the amazing double standard the U.S. Uh, the, the U.S. routinely employs, um, and they also see in American society that they know. Uh, you know, has huge discrepancies in terms, you know, in, in, in terms of, uh, of individual wealth. And they know that the working population is, you know, is not faring well. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that message is getting through. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, you know, so Biden can go up there, you know, and make a speech, you know, the UN, and, uh, and he gets a rave review in the New York Times. But, you know, but the New York Times, you know, the circulation, you know, is read by 3 million people. And there are 7 billion people, or almost 8 billion people in the world. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, when Biden says, uh, you know, says that nations can't, uh, can't pursue their imperial uh, ambitions without consequences, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean it's comic. You, you just got to wonder. <laughs> yeah. You, you got to wonder, does this, guy, does this guy have a working brain cell left? And that, that line was a, was a punchline, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would be. I, I would like to see it, right? I, so far, it just seems like we can still get other countries to sort of follow us into whatever our new adventure is. But maybe there are economic reasons behind that rather than uh, political ones. So much of the time. Dan, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I, and I want to go like just com completely uh, elsewhere in the world. But there was this headline that I saw that that um, really struck me. Um, this Yahoo headline yesterday saying, Kurds fear everything will change if Syria and Turkey reconcile. Um, I had not been aware that there was any reconciliation underway. The last I heard, Turkey was beginning this uh, long-awaited offensive in northern Syria, although again, that seems to have been some sort of scattershot fighting that didn't necessarily turn into anything more organized. Um, and now you have Reuters saying, no, and in fact, a thaw might be coming. Turkey's intelligence chief held talks in Damascus this month. Uh, Moscow is encouraging the two sides to negotiate. And so, you know, without even getting into what it means necessarily for the Kurds, uh, did this take you by surprise? Do you think that it is possible we will see improved relations between Turkey and Syria? And what would that mean? Well, the, the answer is, is, is I'm skeptical. I doubt it very much. If it did happen, it would be at the at the expense of the Kurds, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, there's always the Idlib uh, province question, which is you know which is essentially an an, an Al Qaeda 
uh, occupied province uh, that is essentially protected by 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 Turkey, uh, Syria uh, for you know wants to go and clear it out. That they're I think they're absolutely correct. Um, but you know, but uh, I don't see how an issue like that is going to be easily overcome. I, I think Her- Erdogan is a is a is a really bizarre personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, his 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 economic policies are a disaster. Uh, his He's uh, he's uh, his his nationalism is, uh, you know, is is incredibly erratic. I mean, I mean, he's it seems that every other day he's declaring war on somebody, making peace with someone else. I mean, you know, he, there are there are the tensions between Turkey and Greece are rising mm-hmm. uh, quite dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have no idea what you know what will happen there, whether whether, you know, because Erdogan is his tendency to, to turn it on and then the next day turn it off. Right. Uh, so I think there are, there are there are big issues between Turkey and Syria which will not be overcome. So therefore, it takes more than a, a meeting with an intelligence official uh, to convince me that some kind of real progress is being made. I mean, again, I've, I I was sort of gobsmacked. So I'm glad I was correct to be so. It did seem like uh, it really came out of left field. We will, of course, uh, be watching it because that would be pretty significant if something did happen. That was author and journalist Dan Lazar. Dan, thanks so much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back to talk about voting suppression in the United States. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte, and I'm embarking now on a conversation about efforts at voter suppression and perhaps vote tampering in the U.S. state of Georgia. I also want to talk about how the U.S. Congress is trying to make sure we don't see a repetition of the presidential vote certification crisis of 2020. Uh, We'll see whether they can actually get the entire body to pass legislation that would uh, streamline some of our more archaic laws uh, about those processes. Joining us for this conversation is Greg Pallast. He's known for his investigative reports for the BBC, The Guardian, and Rolling Stone. His bestsellers include The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. Greg, thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you again. Let's get into these two kind of related stories on um, voter suppression and election interference that are happening in Georgia. Uh, There is one that is getting a lot of attention right now and another that has kind of fallen by the wayside. Uh, The flashy one is this ongoing investigation into how Donald Trump and his allies tried to challenge the election results in that state. Earlier this week, video was released of contractors from a legal technology solutions firm that was hired by Trump lawyer Sidney Powell handling what is being termed sensitive voting equipment. Uh, It was sensitive because it might have held personally identifying information about 
state voters in Georgia. Um, also, because the team who went in there said they scanned every ballot, imaged all the hard drives, and basically walked away with all that information with the blessing of the Coffee County officials who were charged with managing the voting. Last week, the prosecutor leading this investigation said that uh, credible allegations they are looking into are very serious and that if people are indicted and convicted, they are facing prison sentences. Uh, and so I wonder if you can start off by updating us on what prosecutors think might have happened in Georgia after the 2020 vote. And then we'll get into uh, the shenanigans they were getting up to before that vote. Well, a couple things. Uh, I was down in Coffee County. Our team was because uh, we're we're about in a couple weeks. Uh, we are um, going to have the world premiere of our film, uh, Vigilante: Georgia's Vote Suppression Hitman, mm-hmm. which is a uh, you know part of a nine-year investigation of vote suppression in Georgia, which is like the it is the the testing ground for uh, all the GOP trickery. Now, it's not just GOP that plays games with votes, but in Georgia, they have complete control of voting mechanism. Mm-hmm. It still didn't stop uh, the victory of um, uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, as uh, Democrats who won the uh, Senate runoff last year, or from Biden uh, taking the state, which, by the way, shocked the Democratic Party because they yeah. don't understand what's going on on the ground. So in Coffee County, which is a long history, first of all, let's let's you got to have a little history here. Mm-hmm. Coffee County is is the center of of uh, Georgia and Ku Klux Klan racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the first black woman elected to city uh, city council in Coffee County, Olivia Pearson. She's in our film. Mm-hmm. Go to gregpalace.com. You can get some of this info. Uh, Olivia Pearson, Coffee County was uh, she was elected to the uh, city council. And Brian Kemp, the current governor, mm-hmm. when he was secretary of state in charge of the vote, as soon as he got in, he started this whole game of, of screaming that Democrat, Democrats were committing massive voter fraud. When he says Democrats, what he meant was black people voting several times mm-hmm. or with the vote, telling people how to vote. So they arrested this woman, Olivia Pearson. Her mother was the head of the George of the uh, Coffee County NAACP. She had sued successfully to get the state to change its uh, voting system. And so her daughter registered, was able to register people and get elected to office. Brian Kemp gets appointed Secretary of State. The first thing he does is arrest Olivia right. Pearson for um, supposedly interfering with voters. It's a felony crime, five years in prison. She's a city official and voters who are disabled and illiterate this is southern this is you know rural georgia there's a lot of illiterate voters who fill out uh, or have filled out for them re- forms requesting help because they can't ha- understand the machines or can't physically use them mm-hmm. they arrested her uh she faced five years in prison two years of trials the jury wow. it out and as soon as she was found not guilty, Kemp had her arrested again. Oh, for what? So you have to understand, when we talk about Coffee County, mm-hmm. okay, so they allowed, these officials allowed, now these same vicious officials allowed uh, Trump and his, and his gang to basically break into the private records of citizens. Mm-hmm. It's not just, first of all, voting is, is an open process. We get to know who votes, how they vote, you know, et cetera. But we don't get to, to identify a particular person with a particular ballot, mm-hmm. except to verify that they are legal voters. So you count their ballot. Uh, and what they have done is 
you can if you take all the personal information, like most people mailed in their ballots or dropped them off in, in Georgia in the last election. Mm-hmm. Well, every ballot has a barcode. Every ballot has a name associated with it. So you can literally find out which voters voted for whom. Mm-hmm. Remember, you, when you have mail-in ballot, you're signing that ballot. Mm-hmm. Um, so in America, our ballot choices are, our ballots are not secret, but the ballot choices are. And this is a grounds for massive harassment. Understand, mm-hmm. they just, oh, like a technical thing, oh, they found out that Joey voted for Biden. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. They find out Joey voted for Biden, and then they challenge mm-hmm. that voters next when they try to vote in 2022 or 2024. Here's how it works. This is important. This is why we call our film Vigilante. Mm-hmm. Uh, SB, uh, Governor Kemp, of, who the one who basically... Stole the election. I don't care if you don't like that term. Stole the election from Stacey Abrams in 2018. Um, and uh, so that's how he's governor. He signed a bill last year called SB202, which is like Jim Crow in cyberspace. It's the updated Jim Crow law. Mm-hmm. And it says that any single, any voter in Georgia can challenge an unlimited number of other voters. Because you don't have to be a government official to say, I don't want um, Major Gamaliel Turner to vote. I'm using that name specifically because, and what they're doing is they have challenged, you ready for this? Over a quarter million voters have been challenged. Right. Right, of their ballots to be counted. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they can take this information about who voted for whom and then challenge those voters. That voter then has to go in now, remember, a lot of, especially absentee voters, mm-hmm. like military people, have to go in to a hearing, to a court-like hearing, to prove they are who they are and that they're legitimate voters or they lose their vote. Mm-hmm. One county, a guy named, uh, uh, one of uh, these Trumpites named, uh, uh, his name is uh, Favorito is his last name, mm-hmm. he just challenged 22,000 people in just Gwinnett County. Can I ask, um, I mean, I think the important thing, I, I'm glad that you s- described what the process is. If if you are someone whose, uh, you know, uh, qualifications to vote have been challenged, you have to pr- show up at this sort of court-like hearing to show that you are who you say you are and whatever, which is a, an, an additional barrier to voting in addition to the fact that we don't have a holiday, that, you know, there are, there are all these barriers put up around helping people to vote, especially if you are black in, in Georgia, as you mentioned. Can I ask, what is the process of challenging this vote? Because you mentioned in this documentary uh, that is going to come out soon, you say uh, one man has challenged 32,000 votes, another a quarter million. Can you, is this just like, do you just go on a forum and like just check hundreds of names at a time to, to challenge them? How does that work? Uh, if you go to gregpals.com, you can see uh, there's a couple clips on film. And one is, is this uh, GOP operative works with Trump and Kemp. Uh, she challenged 32,000 people in Cobb County. Mm-hmm. She literally handed in a thumb drive because she said it was too difficult and expensive to print out 32,000 names. Wow. Paper. So she literally handed in a thumb drive. This thumb drive, of course, this woman didn't come up with 32,000 names. Right. It was a computerized hit list created by a group in Texas called True the Vote, mm-hmm. which is backed by these right-wing billionaires out of Milwaukee called the Bradley Family. And um, the uh, and so she challenged thirty two thousand people. We called eight hundred of them. Mm-hmm. They're all shocked that they were challenged. Can you uh, tell us anything about what unites those thirty two thousand people? <laughs> 
voters of color, the color being blue. No way. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm so surprised at that. It's almost all black and young people. Mm-hmm. And, well, some, a lot of Asian Americans they went after, too, who are now voting like they're black. And um, the, uh, so 32,000 from this one woman. We, if you go to gregpowles.com, you can watch this clip also of one of the vigilante challengers who actually dresses like a vigilante, like Doc Holliday with loaded six guns. He's a, on the Republican State Committee. Mm-hmm. He's not a government official, though. He challenged 4,000 people uh, near Fort Benning, Georgia, mm-hmm. which meant he went after all these black soldiers who were assigned who <sighs> Benning and sent elsewhere. So, for example, the American military's um, uh, expert on uh, future warfare systems, mm-hmm. his name is Major Gamaliel Turner, and he uh, was assigned uh, by the president to California. And so he put in for his absentee ballot. They wouldn't give him his absentee ballot. And he called up. He says, where's my ballot? They said, you've been challenged. <gasps> so, well, what does that mean? They said, you have to just, he said, no problem. You just come into our office and show us some ID, et cetera. He says, I'm 2,600 miles away. Oh, my gosh. And I'm supposed to fly to Georgia now? I said, you talk to fools like that, and I'm not a fool. And uh, so he uh, got a hold of me, and uh, we were investigating these things. So we actually confronted, we had, he confronts the guy who challenged him, who had no idea who he was. He said that he didn't, you know, this uh, vigilante, they use these, they just use the postal change of address forms. Well, obviously, if you're a soldier who's been assigned for six months to California, you're going to put in a change of address form. That doesn't mean you're not a Georgia resident. Right. Become a, you don't lose your citizenship by having a military assignment elsewhere, including if you're in, you know, if, if uh, uh, you know, you're in Poland assigned, uh, you're not supposed to lose your vote. I saw a lot of overseas soldiers challenged. Wow. And these are voters of color. This is the game that's being played and it is a vicious, vicious attack on hundreds of thousands of voters. So when you talk about what these people did in Coffee County, you have to put in the context that what they're really doing is setting up to challenge these voters' right to vote. Mm-hmm. You want to know who voted for Biden and Ossoff and Warnock, and then they're going to say they are not legal voters. And they say, oh, well, big deal. Even if we got a couple people who really were legal voters, all they had to do was walk in and prove who they are. Well, that's, an ult- that's the ultimate poll tax when you make someone fly from California to Georgia to secure their vote. Even if you make someone take a day off work to prove that they'll vote. And by the way, as, the, as even some of the Republican county officials said, how do we handle thousands of people running into our offices? Mm-hmm. It's still COVID on, you know, it's like, how do we stop? You know, what are we going to do? We're going we're gonna to be wiped out with these challenges. We can't even handle them. So it means that the voters Votes won't count because you're guilty until prove until you prove yourself innocent. It is vicious, nasty, and um, and I and by the way, I think it, it and lawyers like uh, you'll see on camera the Gerald Griggs of the uh, NAACP has said this is a violation of Ku Klux Klan Act. Yeah, we, you know this is this is this is illegal. 
Uh, can I ask, you, you say that Georgia is the testing ground for this kind of stuff and that these um, uh, compilations of votes to be challenged are being generated uh, with the help of a company in Texas. So, I mean, I know you have been focused in Georgia, uh, but is this going on now elsewhere or should we expect this, this kind of activity to proliferate? Well, like I say, it starts out in Georgia. Georgia was unusual in that it specifically added into its new law that you can challenge an unlimited number of voters. They also said that the governor can remove any election official who doesn't accept the, the challenges, and he already has um, uh, removed a couple, uh, ten black officials from, uh, from office uh, who are elections officials, ex- elections experts, but who are questioning this business. So he just removed them. The problem is, is it is spreading to other states. You have challenges in Texas, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, Arizona, and uh, and expected for if this works in Georgia, if uh, Brian Kemp can keep office through this new Jim Crow trick, there's expansion. It's actually expansion of an old Jim Crow trick, but now it's you know you use thumb drives and spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's Jim Crow in cyberspace. And um, I, if it works here, and there's also effects in these other states, expect to see it in 30, 40 states, this mass challenge of voters' right to vote. And it will all be under the guise of, oh, we're stopping voter fraud. We're stopping illegal voters from voting. Do, would these states have to sort of, would you expect them to follow the same pattern as Georgia did, which is to pass a law to allow citizens to challenge other citizens? Is this sort of step one? And so, you know, the fight is to have this law, I guess, declared unconstitutional in some way? Well, one is obviously Georgia's little addition of saying that it's, putting in the law that you have an unlimited right to challenge mm-hmm. is unlimited number of challenges. That is the most dangerous thing to spread. But most states actually do have some type of law that says, if you know for sure that someone is voting illegally, you can block their vote uh, in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's usually, it's usually one single voter. In other words, you have to testify, you have to certify, I know that voter and I know that they don't live here anymore. Mm-hmm. I know that voter, uh, you know, is know, surf, serving a felony sentence, uh, you know, something right. like that. But this is, this is not like I'm challenging Joe Black, which was the old Ku Klux Klan method of stopping black voters, challenging one at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, now saying I can just hand in a spreadsheet with, that someone handed me, and I don't have to know any of these voters. Mm-hmm. I mean, these vigilantes, they're 88 in Georgia. And when I spoke to them, they didn't know a single voter that they challenged. Not one. They didn't call anyone. They didn't check the addresses. They didn't make any uh, notify anyone. They just got this list from this group out of Texas and simply submitted it to the state. And now they've got this other guy, uh, this guy, uh, 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 a Trumpite named uh, Favorito, who is generating thousands and thousands of names. And, of course, you've got Trump's little gang in there to pull names. To then say, oh, we don't, you know, mm-hmm. look at how this guy voted. Uh, I wonder if we can challenge his vote. And then they say, oh, yeah, we didn't check. We just submitted these names of black soldiers. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with that because all they have to do is come in and prove uh, who they are. Right. 
deal. Yeah. And again, it, it's not going to stop anyone from voting, but you just sort of death by a thousand cuts, right? Just make it harder and harder and harder. Uh, Greg Palestine, we could go on a, about this for a, another half hour, but we are coming to the very end of this radio show. So um, I will let you tell our listeners where they can go to find more about uh, your documentary that's going to be released soon and find more about their your other work. Where should they go? Okay. It premieres October 5 in Atlanta. It's a red carpet premiere, but you can request a ticket. Mm-hmm. Go to gregpalace.com, and you can also meet the major whose vote was challenged, the vigilante who challenged him, and the, and the woman uh, with, with her guns who threw me out of her house who challenged <laughs> and that again, that's uh, Vigilante, Georgia's vote suppression hitman. That was investigative journalist George, uh, Greg Pallast. Greg, thank you so much for being here. All right, we are coming to the very end of the show. I want to say, you know, there have been some very interesting and inspiring, uh, sometimes not at the same time, speeches made by uh, Latin American leaders at the UN General Assembly this week. And we didn't get a chance to talk about them, uh, you know, in the last couple of days. But I definitely want to in the next week. So I think we'll do a little bit of a roundup, especially going to look at uh, where Chilean President Gabriel Boritz uh, came down in his speech, which was a pretty big contrast, I think, to the likes of Xiomara Castro in Honduras and Gustavo Petro in Colombia. I also think it's worth noting, you know, we just had a conversation yesterday on this show about the U.S. military struggling to meet its recruitment goals. Uh, Apparently, military officials just yesterday were saying the same thing, saying uh, recruitment is really struggling right now. And also the shortfall could increase if U.S. women decide they don't want to serve anymore over the restrictive abortion laws that now exist in many U.S.-led states. Um, So uh, concern that these political decisions could actually start affecting the readiest of the U.S. military. Also, because uh, Liz Truss just can't, <laughs> Liz, Liz Truss, uh, I don't know why this makes me laugh so much, but uh, Liz Truss has uh, told leaders in Israel that the United Kingdom might uh, move its embassy to Jerusalem. That was a move that sparked uh, weeks long, months long, I can't remember recall correctly at the moment, but long protests when the United States did it um, resulted in quite a lot of bloodshed, quite a lot of chaos, uh, is uh, of course purely symbolic and uh, provocative to Palestine. And so I guess, you know, Liz Truss continuing her uh, tradition of uh, finding the most provocative thing to do it and do it in, doing it in the most provocative way. So we'll we'll watch. We'll see. Have more antics from her next week. I'm sure. That's going to be it for the show today and for this week. I want to thank all of our guests, of course, our producers and engineers, uh, and uh, on well, on behalf of myself, John Kiriak is going to be back next week. Thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, we'll talk to you on Monday. <laughs> <laughs>